0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's virtual program here at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is DJ Patel. I'm the former U- U.S. Chief Data Scientist, and I'm a current member of the Commonwealth uh, Club's Board of Governors. And I'm really excited to be here with one of the people I deeply respect and have admired uh, to, and moderating this program, with Alec Ross. While today's program is virtual, the club has actually restarted. We're starting to hold limited uh, in-person programs at our San Francisco headquarters. And I hope you'll go online and check out the the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. And as I mentioned today, I'm pleased to be joined by Alec Ross to discuss his new book right here, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, Through interviews with the world's most influential thinkers, stories of corporate activism and malfeasance, government failures, renewal, and innovative uh, economic and political models, Alec really proposes a new model for a social contract, one that resets the contract between corporations, the governing, and the governed. In the next hour, uh, I, I hope that you're not only going to be just listening, but you're gonna think about participating. And we'll put your questions in online and uh, in the in the, the chat or on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. If you'd like to follow along also and keep tabs on what Alec is doing, please follow him on Twitter at Alec J Ross as A-L-E-C-J and then R O S S. I'm deep. PATIL, DEPATIL, and also please follow on the Commonwealth Club at CW Club. Alec, I am so excited to actually be talking about this work. This is such an important time on this topic as we're evaluating the social contract, especially in light of the, the the one of the largest legislative packages to ever be done on the social on the safety net and establishing what that social contract is in the light of COVID. And to lead up with that, maybe you could start by talking to us about what is a social contract, and in particular, I'd love for you to frame the social contract in this 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 the
0: beginning of of where you start with Engel's pause, and also how has this evolved over the centuries sure thank you and and thank you all for tuning in. Um, for me, it's a terrific honor to be able to participate in this event with the Commonwealth Club, and especially to do it with with DJ Patel. I ran technology policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign, and we were these crazy young kids. There was—you'll see some gray here. There there was no gray uh, back in 2007 and 2008. And we were this young crew trying to bring uh, some technology savvy into governance, and. The whole agenda we developed was in substantial part to try to be, bring people like DJ into government to drive smarter and better government services, which he did then as our first chief data officer. So it's, it's a thrill to be with you, um, with you all and with you specifically, DJ. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Right back um, at you, brother. <laughs> to answer your question, the social contract. What does that mean, social contract? Well, look, in a perfect world, there's a sort of equilibrium. There's an equilibrium that exists between citizens, government, and business. So uh, business does what it does best. It imagines and invents the future. It provides goods and services that we all benefit from, and they make a profit. And in, in so doing, they create wealth and well-being. Government is supposed to create the, the sort of rules of the road. Uh, that sort of keep everything together, but government is it should be governed by democratic consent, so the people themselves choose their government and in a perfect world, there's a sort of equilibrium in this world, and the social contract actually has dated back ever since human beings were on two feet you know at the at the time when we figured out that hey we human beings. We'd be better off if we banded together than sort of run around and try to defend ourselves against saber-toothed tigers. We're better off together. Ever since then, we have we have set guidelines for how we'll interact, how we'll work together. And the start you asked me to, to start with the Engels pause, and, and I think that that sort of makes things a little bit more concrete. Uh, for centuries. Our social contract was rooted in in an agricultural model, meaning that, you know, most goods and services were agricultural. And, you know, just let's put things in a European context for a moment. Uh, feudalism was the dominant social contract for for centuries, where the monarchs, the king or queen, would give the nobility uh, access to lands in exchange for taxation and military service, and the serfs were then obliged to live on the land of their lord for a percentage of the crops and for and for protection. Uh, but then, for a period of about eighteen, from a period from about eighteen hundred to eighteen forty, uh, because of, in large part because of technology, the economy migrated from being dominantly agriculture based to being to being industrial. Uh, labor went from farm to factory and from the countryside into the city. But this was the sort of industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels, 11-year-olds losing their fingers in the factories. And we didn't really rewrite the relationship between state capital and labor, between government, business, and citizens. And what did that lead to? Uh, Well, what it led to was, yes, an enormous amount of wealth created for a very small number of people, but also misery for the working class. This in turn led to the largest wave of revolutions in history. And it led to ideological movements like Marxism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. But eventually industrialization worked. And why did industrialization work? Industrialization worked because with all of this technology-driven change, uh, we also innovated with our public policy. So we said, yes, you can work in that factory. Uh, but instead of an 11-year-old losing their hands in the factory, we're going to create this thing called a child labor law. You you have to be 16 before you go work in the factory. And instead of working for 14 hours a day, six days a week, uh, we're going to create this thing called a minimum wage. We're going to create this thing called a weekend. The concept of a weekend has only existed about 170 years. And hey, if you work in that 50, in that factory for 25 or 30 years, there will be this thing waiting for you at the end called a pension. So ultimately industrialization worked because what accompanied all of this technolo- technological development were things like child labor laws, pensions, minimum wages, a, a a weekend so that people only worked 5 days a week. And what's where I think we are now is where the sort of angles pause uh, as we transition from a dominantly industrial-based economy into one that's technology-rich and, and knowledge-based. Um, DJ, do you have any kids?
1: I do. I have two. And and, and I'm glad for child labor laws. Yeah, and
0: how, and how, how old are they?
1: Uh, I have a, t- a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old.
0: So you've got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. I've got a 14-, 16-, and 19-year-old. Of our five children, I bet zero. I bet zero of our five children have a single employer uh, that they stay with for twenty-five or thirty years, and at the end of it, they get a pension. It's it's statistically very unlikely. But our
1: social—I was actually going to bring this up. Like, you know, I think about it in the sense like when you bring up pensions and child labor laws, you know, we're seeing this, especially with globalization. We are seeing children like child labor laws don't mean anything in certain countries because we're. You know we're buying products from them. Also, like as you pointed out, pensions aren't going to be there. Like that idea is gone effectively. If not, we hear in the the media all the time how pensions are bankrupting our cities or somebody's having to renegotiate. So it's it's almost like th- there's like we've I don't know if it's have we rever- have we regressed or is it just like we're in a new form where th- these things just need to be completely rewritten.
0: You just got it. Like you just got it, DJ. So all of these things, free public education was another one. I mean, we have free public education uh, right now going up to the age of 18 because 200 years ago, an 18-year-old, if he he was, and it was a he, if he was an elite, he would go on to university. If he was a non-elite, he would go work in a port factory minor mill. The reason why the school year works the way it does was so that People could go work in, literally in the fields in June, July, and through the harvest in August. So all of these constructs—whether it's a pension, whether it's a child labor law, whether it's public education—are all rooted in the industrial age norms of 200 years ago. Now all of this is changing wildly, but the the basis of our safety net, the basis of our social contract is still, for the most part, 200 years old. And a lot of the ideas of our politicians are, if I were gonna, I'm going to be honest, it's like, let's take those ideas that are two year, 200 years old and let's just strengthen them, as opposed to coming up with entirely new ideas for what it means in an entirely new economy.
1: So let's take that, actually, one of the chapters I, th- I found really fascinating was about this this notion of you know, just strengthen them or just don't adapt. Like we're in this complete new world, especially, you know, in Silicon Valley of how we think about technology and how it's changing the world. And you led this, these efforts at the state department, let's talk about labor laws and labor movement in particular unions. And, and to start with that, I'm really interested about how labor changes, especially given that we have more contractors than ever, versus people who are actually employed. They don't get the same benefits. We the, the Biden administration is very pro-union. Also, they're pro-vaccine mandate, yet they're in conflict with many of the unions, like the police union, some of the teachers' unions around the vaccine mandates. And so how how do we think about unions and labor going forward?
0: Yeah. So I should do some disclosures at the beginning of this. So Look, I'm speaking to you from Baltimore, Maryland, but I'm a I'm I'm from I'm a public school kid from the coal filled hills of West Virginia. Um, that's the world that I come from, and I worked actually. You know, I went to a good college. I went to Northwestern University, but during the summers, I'd do things like work as a janitor and on a beer truck. And when I worked on the beer truck, um, I was shoulder to shoulder with guys who were in the Teamsters, and I saw. Unions at their best. I saw these men who they were all like Hercules. All right, they 50 fifty, sixty years old, but they were as strong as Hercules. And we would work the literally the door of the gar- big old steel garage door would go up at six o'clock in the morning, which mean we meant we had to be there at five fifteen in the morning, and we'd work our tails off until about seven thirty at night. Um, they worked like dogs, and they made good livings. Um, and so I came out of that experience. At, um, out of my college years, being like, you know what, unions are incredibly important. And then my first year out of college, I joined a union. I was a public school teacher. I was in Teach for America and I joined uh, the Teachers Union in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, I got to tell you, I saw the exact opposite. Um, I saw the malignance of unions. So I saw the benefits of union, working shoulder to shoulder with those Teamsters on the beer truck. But then I saw I was teaching sixth graders. And What I saw was the the teachers' union focusing on just protecting the worst performers. If you had sex with a student, we'll protect you. If you have a heroin addiction, we'll protect you. If you haven't written a lesson plan in three years and none of your schools have demonstrated any increased academic achievement, we'll protect you. So they didn't fight for... For higher wages, better workplace environment, advancement for the children, strengthening the profession, anything like that it was it was protecting the bottom and so i 've seen what unions can do for good and i 've seen what unions can do for bad, and what I believe is that in all of these models we 're stuck in the past um, you know look i 'm a long way from. The coal filled hills of West Virginia. I'm now, you know, look, I'm a partner in venture capital fund with over a billion dollars of assets under management. I write books that get translated into lots of different languages, and part part of what I've seen, for example, sitting on the board of a publicly traded Swiss company, is how the American model of labor is so much less effective than models around the rest of the world. Where, you know, for example, in Switzerland, um, you know, again, where I sit on a board of directors. Instead of labor constantly being viewed as in opposition to management or into shareholders, what labor does is they have some voice. They have a place in management, in governance, and in the equity structure of the company. So they are sort of co-stakeholders. So, you know, look, I could talk about this all night, but the long and short of it is whether it's Joe Biden whether it is you know, the, the, the Teamsters in my home, my, my native West Virginia, or the, the Baltimore Teachers Union, uh, where I was a teacher, they're all regressive in many respects. They're all thinking about labor and the relationship between capital and labor as it existed in the 20th century, as opposed to saying, all right, we're in the 2020s. What does a 21st century labor movement look like? How do we optimize for the well-being of workers in the economy that actually exists today? And that's, that's what I try to, to write a fair bit about in this book, which is, in this case, the United States is really underperforming thinking about how workers can positively and productively Advocate for more wealth and more more well being because their models for organizing um, are really regressive. It, it strikes me
1: that you know a common theme through your book is actually this: we're playing yesterday's game versus not looking ahead uh, and and trying to think through what's coming next. And I think we we've seen it stress tested here, or we've left wanting in the wake of COVID. Uh, and you know, I think about it in terms of government. Like, what is the role of government and and uh, regulation regulators, and how they're not able to keep up even with very basics of how to think about data or technology or, or, or very basics. What, what one of the stories you talk about in, in the in the book is about FEMA and the hurricanes in uh, Puerto Rico, and. I'd love maybe to, to delve into that for a bit because one of the things that really surprised me, which I didn't fully appreciate when you were talking about this, is that FEMA is actually starting to lower their expectations. And, and I think about that for us that are here in California and our dependence on FEMA for uh, wildfires and earthquakes and so many other things.
0: Could you, could you talk about that? Sure. So yeah, there's, a, there's a concept that I describe in the book called kludgeocracy. Um, and for those of you that work in the world of software, you'll know that, you know, Cludge is, the, you know, it's basically a software patch. It's, it's something you put onto, onto an existing code base to just try to get, your th- get yourself through things. And government has become very kludgy, meaning that it's become incredibly complicated where, you know, whenever a tax bill or an infrastructure bill or an appropriations bill comes through, like it's, it's the, the stack of paper is two feet tall. Um, it's impenetrable. Our re- and our regulatory environment has become, in many respects, impenetrable. And it's interesting to think about San Francisco, for example. We built big and beautiful things in the past. We built iconic bridges. We built remarkable transportation systems decades and decades ago that it would be hard to imagine building today. I mean, imagine building some of the bridges. Uh, that are now iconic. Imagine building those today. Now, we haven't gotten more stupid uh, in the decades since we built those bridges. And we've not grown less technologically savvy. So why can we not architect uh, the, and, and, and develop the kinds of solutions that we did in the past? And it's in substantial part because of how kludgy government has gotten. And FEMA, uh, with a deca-billion-dollar budget, uh, the story that I tell in The Raging 2020s is basically how, is the story of, it's just a little case study, of how a chef, uh, a friend of mine named Jose Andres, who runs a modestly-sized nonprofit uh, called World Kitchen Central, outperformed a deca dollar government agency responding to, um, responding to the storm in Puerto Rico. And it's it's because we've the government has become so large and so complex that it can't. It, 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 we talk about steering a battleship. It's it's like it, it's grown even more complicated than that. And in many respects, what we need to do, I believe, is strip things down and make and deregulate, make things more efficient. Um, pull out some of the complexity in the processes, allow for some entrepreneurship in government. It ought not be the case that a chef outperforms FEMA, delivering hundreds of thousands of meals to Puerto Rico. And this is a case where, you know, DJ, for me, this book is not about the political right versus the political left. The words Trump, Obama, Biden, Clinton, none of those words even appear in the text. My point is that I don't care what your political affiliation is, whether you orient yourself to the right or whether you orient yourself to the left. There are things we we can do that just are are rooted in good business sense to make government more efficient and effective. And that is something that whether we know it or not, um, will ultimately advance the goals from across across the political spectrum.
1: You know, I think about that in, in, in... You know the context of what we're seeing. We, we you know we've had this challenge. The CDC wasn't there, and so data, data scientists and scientists had to step up and start the COVID tracking project, and so many other things to fill that gap. We have the privatization of firefighters here in California because you know our our work for, our, our state resources for firefighting are stretched so thin. People dial nine one one, and we hear all these horror stories where they keep getting busy signals. And I wonder what's the what should we be thinking about? Like, what should the public be advocating for, or how do we get ourselves out of this? Where we have been very fortunate to grow up with a system that we largely can trust. Like, I expect FEMA to show up, I expect these groups to be there, but we're not seeing it now. Uh, how, how do we get? What's our what's the path?
0: Yeah, so in this respect I think the path is we need to take we we need to start do some sacred cow tipping. What I mean by that is we get so entrenched in this incredibly unproductive political binary of Democrat versus Republican. Where Republicans say we need to defund things and make and we need to make things smaller and Democrats say, "Oh, well if we don't have enough firefighter resources, we need to collect more tax di- dollars and make it bigger." Both of them, in many respects, are both right and both are wrong. Um, what we need to expect, what we need to demand is that the, the the people who actually operate these government institutions are willing to do whatever it is necessary, even if it is politically difficult, um to make the departments to make these departments and agencies function effectively. And look, I, I worked for Barack Obama for six years, four of which were in the government. And a lot of the and a lot of the difficulty, even as a as a presidential appointee, was running headlong into this sort of snowstorm of bureaucracy and regulation. And ultimately, I think it would be in the interest of the political left to recognize that it doesn't serve them well to just defend big government. They need to be defending and trying to advocate more for good government. I think even in the the context of this trillion dollar infrastructure bill, I think it would have been much, everybody's in favor of infrastructure, right? But still, it's like a 50-50 vote in the Senate. And I think it would have been much more popular if instead of just talking about how much money we're going to spend and what we're going to spend it on, is if we also said, and oh by the way, you know, here are the things we're gonna do to prove to you, the American people, that we can spend this money efficiently and effectively.
1: Hey, you you've seen this on the inside. I mean I remember so many times like being in there and we're trying to either make something happen, you're trying to get dollars, you're you're running up against the system. You're finding that people don't have a sense of urgency. Bureaucracy is designed somewhat to slow things down, yet Things are happening at a faster rate than ever. It, it, is it is it that we need a reboot of these agencies? Are these agencies not right? Like maybe, like let's narrow this down around COVID and just pick on the CDC because it's such a timely topic right now. And there's how like what would you do if you had the magic wand for some of these agencies or some of these these um, lanes of policy areas since they kind of cover multiple agencies.
0: Yeah. So some of these departments and agencies need to be stripped down to their studs. They just do. I mean the fact that I got more reliable information through COVID from the Twitter accounts of, you know, specific scientists than I got from government is is fairly damning. Think about the Department of Labor. You know, the Department of Labor is a decabillion dollar department. It's huge. But DJ, you know, you've allocated capital, you've been a senior executive. So I, like, so how frequently is the department, to what degree is the U.S. Department of Labor really driving the labor agenda in the United States? It's not, it's not at all. Um, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, again, tens of billions of dollars per year. Um, are they paying, playing a... Productive or a marginal role in providing f- access to fit and affordable housing. It's it's, it's pretty good debate. The, in all of these cases, um, I'm sympathetic to the I'm support not just sympathetic I'm supportive of the missions. I'm entirely in favor of resourcing the hell out of them with our tax dollars. But I do recognize that we need to we need to take a lot of again these sacred cows that have a little bit of a political constituency and get rid of them. We need to tear down a lot of the bureaucratic infrastructure that is inhibiting their effectiveness. I mean, again, I'm I'm just going to speak very, very straightforwardly and perhaps undiplomatically. Um, But, you know, the Obama administration, I love Barack Obama. I worked for him again for six years. But how, how was Donald Trump elected after him? And why is his legacy so contested now? Well, it's, I believe it's at least in part because people wanted great change, a, you know, great leaps forward as opposed to incrementalism. And we were, and we were constrained to incrementalism in in substantial part because of the structures and strictures of our very complex government. And part of what appealed uh, to Trump voters was when he said, drain the swamp, you know the the image that he was giving to people was i'm going to blow up the system. And i don't think i mean again i'm from west virginia when i talk to people in west virginia they don't think he's a good guy. Some do. Um you know, yeah they know he's terrible to women. Yeah they know he's racist but they still believe he was going to blow up the system. And so i think the right approach is actually it's not necessarily blow up blow up the system but is massively and boldly Reform the system in service to the American people. And right now, unfortunately, the choice that too often is given is sort of the incrementalist and technocratic approach on one side, which gets politically rejected, or a very extreme and extremist alternative. And I think that ultimately, you know, and that's part of why, you know, in the title of the book, I use the title is is the raging 2020s. This is what produces rage in people. It produces rage that um, they aren't seeing the outcomes that they hope for and that they expect. And ultimately, this creates a sort of radicalization, you know, again, uh, on both political polls.
1: Well, let's put that in the lens of what we're seeing legislatively right now, especially around the climate and these things where there's consensus. It's it's almost like we're in a zero sum game versus, as you point out, the, this uh, collaborative kind of approach in the, in the book. And, and what I'm wondering about is at one side, you have the Democrats who are pitching this as extraordinarily bold and other people are saying, hey – It's not bold enough, and then you've got uh, the the Republicans who are basically saying, "Look, this is a dysfunctional system, and you're just throwing everything away." Uh, What's the path
0: out? So I think the path out is actually to try to to try to bring the goals of the two can like you're not going to make everybody happy ever, but I think that what we need to do is make more clear the degree to which we can tie together. The clim- the the outcomes in terms of change, of creating more sus- creating more sustainable, greener sources of energy, with economic growth, and this is a, and this is a case where they're actually outperforming us uh, in Europe. In Europe, climate change and climate related investments and regulation are not that controversial are not nearly as controversial, even in countries that are fairly fossil fuel dependent, including some of the Nordics. And the reason for it is in the United States, climate change related legislation is viewed as being economically detrimental. Whereas in much of Europe, they view it as a trillion dollar or trillion euro opportunity. They believe that yes, you know, in the same way in which in which fossil fuels uh, enabled 100 plus years of industrialization, so too will sustainable forms of energy enable a century of a technology-rich knowledge-based economy. And so there's a more integrated mindset there than there is in the United States. And here's the really scary part. The Chinese are ahead of us too in this recognition. I got for you. Xi Jinping and the Politburo; these are not these are not Greta Thunberg ideologues, but they are allocating very substantial resources toward the creation of sustainable forms of energy and toward R and D out of their raw economic and climate interests. It's only in the United States, we among the 196 countries on planet Earth, have almost uniquely managed to factionalize this, to make it binary. Either you're in favor of mitigating climate change or you're in favor of something that's good for the economy. That binary doesn't exist in most of the rest of the world.
1: It's really amazing. And and let's switch gears a little bit and talk about corporations on the, the, the side of things and particularly how the role of corporations have changed. You know, one portion of the book, you really talk about how corporations, you know, I I believe, I can't remember the exact number, but it was basically companies were in, uh, major companies were in every city. And they were, they, you know, their executives were very invested in their their local uh, society. They were on the boards of the local nonprofits. A lot of the profits Drove back. Now we're in a world of very little uh, of, of investment goes into our local communities. If anything, we're getting increased consolidation. May, talk to us about where what you found as you look across the changing social fabric, like social that 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 contract of what we should expect with corporations and what role are they playing?
0: Sure. So thank you for that question. If there's one difference between this book, The Raging 2020s, and Anybody anywhere else who's written about the social contracting going back centuries to Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, in the past, all the discussions about the social contract it's been about government and citizens. And what I believe is that we're now at a moment where unless you include corporations in that, you're not talking about the full picture in many respects because we are more governed by companies than we are by countries. We're more governed by companies than we are by governments. So again, thinking about your 12-year-old and your 14-year-old and my 14-, 16-, and 19-year-olds, I guarantee you that their their lives, from the moment they wake up to the time they go to bed, what they are and are not allowed to do, the structures and strictures of their life are more governed by big companies than they are by state, within federal, state, and local laws. Um, And What I believe, and I should say, you know, look, I'm a capitalist. I'm not one of those people who has his fists clenched and sort of angrily says, you know, big business is the enemy and every billionaire is a policy failure. I actually don't believe that. Um, But what I do believe is, going back to the previous part of our discussion, DJ, is when government doesn't govern, the responsibility oftentimes for administering the social contract falls on companies, so let's so for example, the federal minimum wage has not been raised since two thousand eight. That's thirteen years. For thirteen years, the minimum wage hasn't been raised. What that means, for all intents and matters, that is that Walmart and Amazon set the minimum wage much more than the federal government. When government doesn't enact uh, climate change related uh, climate change related legislation or regulation. What it means is that our the the actions taken by our by our big businesses are more consequential than anything that happens in Glasgow, you know, at COP twenty six, where the heads of state all gather and give great speeches. At the end of the day, there could be a lot of talk there, but the packaging specs decided by Walmart might be actually be a lot more important than anything that a long list of G twenty leaders have to say.
1: Could we could we actually go into that for a little bit because Please. I, I thought this was I think people would be fascinated by this and you talk about this I didn't realize that Walmart is our third largest employer in the United States and if I remember right it's something like you point
0: out that they have more real estate than all of Manhattan that's right and it's and it is technically the largest company in the world it is the largest company the only the only rivals are the Chinese and American militaries. It's it's amazing.
1: And, and yet they decide what got them to realize that they wanted to be proactive. Like, normally, we think of companies as evil corporation, and they're in it for only themselves, but they changed LED light bulbs, they decided to change the way packaging or, or what ingredients are in the chemicals that are in yep. uh, uh, laundry is not acceptable or acceptable.
0: Yeah, so part of what I try to do try to do with this book, and this is me just being ornery, um, is try to take the exam I try to take some of the good guys. Everybody thinks these are the good guys, and I give the and I try to tell stories about how actually the halo on their heads a little crooked. And by the same token, part of what I try to do give examples of companies um, that we oftentimes put black hats on demonstrate that they actually do a lot of good. I mean another example that I'll give is Goldman Sachs. Like, and I chose Goldman Sachs just because it is the very caricature. You know I mean it is like the caricature of close your eyes, say, you know, the world's most important most powerful investment bank. I mean it's just sort of the caricature of capitalism in the 2020s. There's no organi- there's no government. There's no company that has done more to, to actually, not rhetorically, but to actually d- diversify board composition than Goldman Sachs. And I tell the story in the book about how um, there was a competition to become CEO. And DJ, you know, and for many of you listening, you know that we're all governed by incentives. And when there are two big dogs trying to become the CEO, um, there's some oftentimes great stories behind that. And I tell the story about how David Solomon, who was one of the two contenders to become the CEO actually became sort of the lead dog um, in the race to become CEO. And, and the short version of it is the board of directors wanted a, a strategy and presentation on diversity. And David's competitor to become CEO uh, left it to David to, to do the presentation and give the strategy, as the head of the investment banking said, to quote, let him eat the shit sandwich. And David, instead of coming up with like, oh, we're gonna, you know, do this cool little PR thing, marketing, it's gonna reflect well on us. Maybe we'll hire a, you know, a person of color from this demographic to become our head of marketing and we'll push around. He said, you know what, he went big. And he, he said, we will only take companies public who meet the following diversity thresholds. And that changed the venture capital and PE ecosystem broadly, where all of us now are talking about board diversity um, as our companies grow. And so the the long and short of this, DJ, is I try to hold business accountable. And, you know, look, I've heard from a number of CEOs who thought I kicked them in the teeth a little too hard, um, and that's frankly good. But there are also cases where if we're being intellectually honest, we recognize that most of these CEOs and boards of directors are not constituted by, you know, rapacious villains trying to you know fleece their customers and employees but they actually do want to be responsible and i try to elevate the examples where doing good for the world has uh, has also been good for business
1: uh we're going to go to questions in just a bit uh i'm talking to alec ross and his book here the the raging 2020s uh uh, if the, if you want to add questions on the, the, and you're on the YouTube channel, the, please put them in the text to chat functionality. Uh, before we go to questions, I actually have two questions that I want to go through. First is, you have the stat in the book that 24% of millennials thinks it's bad to live in a democracy. I mean, what are we going to do with that?
0: Yeah, that blew me away. I mean – it's a, it was a study by um, two prominent academics. And, and the story was actually related to me by a guy named Richard Trumpka, who just died. He was the president of the AFL-CIO, America's largest union. Um, and I didn't believe him when he told me that. He gave me this data about, about the perception of democracy among young Americans. And I didn't believe it. So I actually, being a geek, I actually went and read the study. I was like, oh, my God, he's right. And it's fairly terrifying. And the explanation of it is it simply stated is that younger Americans, um, some of their earliest memories start with 9-11. They grow a little older Then a defining memory is the economic crisis of 2007, 2008, then the election of Donald Trump, the climate crisis, COVID. And so what's, what's fascinating and frightening, frankly, is that millennials right now view democracy as something of debatable virtue and value, whereas our demographic, TJ, it's like, well, we may have different views on 400 different things, but we all believe that democracy is the best form of government. So what is interesting right now is that among younger Americans, two of the pillars, if you're 40 years old or older, in the united states for the most part i'm speaking in a caricature but the caricature is true because it's not it, the caricature is representative because it represents the views of more than 90 percent americans capitalism and democracy were sort of two foundational things uh that everybody pretty much age 40 and older in the united states believes in sort of without debate and neither of those are Universally embraced among Americans below the age of 35, and the the day and the reasons for this are are varied, but the reality of of this is something that we all need to come to grips with.
1: No, um, just before we go to questions, well, the 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 one organization that has had a massive impact on life in the United States is religion, and what what about religion in the... The social contract. What, what's
0: the role for it going forward? So interesting. I'm glad you asked that. So religion was the definer of the social contract in many respects for thousands of years. I'll stay Western just for the purpose of this example. But if you go back to feudalism, if you go back to you know thousands of years of of European history up to an ending uh, at the at the end of the the Enlightenment, the church. Played a role, but bluntly it was autocratic. It was the church sort of dictating terms to the secular leaders, the monarchs um and then commanding uh and then in many respects commanding the non elites and so to the extent that there was anything contested to the extent that there was competition over the social contract, it was between the monarchs, it was between the kings and queens, and between The church, in today's context, uh, religion has not found its place for the most part in our social contract because there is less exchange, and there tends to be more command and control. Uh, And in those places where uh, the church, where where religion does play a dominant role in the social contract, it tends to be in a more command and control environment. It tends to be, you know, instructions coming from on high to the people. This is what you will do. This is how you will do it. As opposed to, you know, when you get better educated and when when you become wealthier, facts are 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 not as easily received um, and then just and then just applied. It's things become more contested and debated. So the role of religion recedes as the level of education and as the level level of wealth goes up.
1: Okay. Uh, let's take one of the this first question. It's timely given the UN Climate Conference and everything that's happening in Glasgow. What are your thoughts regarding governments and corporations, social contracts when it comes to fighting climate change? Especially since we don't see much or hear much about companies at this very
0: classic UN style conference. We hear more about them at Davos or somewhere else. <laughs> no, that's right. So I think that for the first time we need to make uh, our environment, the climate environment, a stakeholder in our social contract. The original sin, the original sin of industrialization, was was environmental destruction. So what we now need to atone for, really, is the original sin of industrialization, and I do think it's a shortcoming of these very formal multilateral gatherings of governments to not recognize companies as protagonists. So what we have is a few examples like Jeff Bezos flying to Glasgow and making a three billion dollar commitment. You know, we we got examples of this, and it's all good. It's all fine. Array for all of them, but they aren't stakeholders. I mean, this is still overwhelmingly diplomats wearing white shirts and red ties, talking to other diplomats wearing white shirts and red ties, flags flying in the background in mahogany paneled rooms, trying to come up with formal accords, as opposed to recognizing the degree to which business can and should be a protagonist within this. I'm also of the view that we are not going to do enough to mitigate the effects of climate change purely through behavior change to dial things back. We actually have to innovate. At the end of the day, yes, we can do things to slow the pace of climate change and and slow the pace of of, uh, increased temperatures. But ultimately, the way we get out of this is not through behavior change. It's through innovation. It's through people coming through with breakthrough technologies that allow for uh, carb- carbon-free production, carbon, car- a carbon-free way of fueling the future. And that likely is not going to come uh, out of the public sector. It it needs to come with public sector support, but unlike the Manhattan Project and other like, unlike other sort of breakthrough advances in science, I think it's much more likely that the private sector is going to play a dominant role in this. So the private sector should have a seat at the table at convenings like COP twenty six, and not just for PR or diplomatic reasons, but really, again, as an actor as 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 the institutions that likely are going to come up with the ways in which we're going to save ourselves.
1: What, you know, a follow-on kind of quick question to that is what, what about the role, how do you, how do you make that, I'm, I'm trying to tap into your State Department experience here because you've, put the, you've kind of put these big meetings together and, and you kind of have the big actors, but we know there's this incredible long tail of the future big companies that have yet to be developed, yet to be started, and how do we, how do we gain the 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 excitement and enthusiasm of everyone who would go try to do mining of bitcoins or get, do something like that, and focus on the climate?
0: So it's through incentives. Look, I believe at the end of the day that we human beings are. We are inherently selfish beasts, whether it is for money, whether it is for love, whether it is for power, whatever it is, we are governed by our incentives, right? And so why are people enthusiasts for mining Bitcoin? Because they have incentives that drive them there for either wealth creation or the perception of freedom. So we're driven by our incentives. So the only way in which we're going to be able to bring, as you described it, DJ, the long tail, the non-big companies, into this are to create incentives for them to engage. So that if, if and if that is too abstract, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is how do we red-blooded capitalists allocate capital differently because of the incentives that have been created? How you know do you how do you make it financially worthwhile to allocate? high risk, early stage capital to the now very small companies to make it worth the allocation of capital so that they take these big audacious bets on breakthrough technologies. You have to tip the scale. You have to reorient the incentives. You know, one of the problems, even though I take a dominantly economic, uh, I, I view topics like the social contract through a dominantly economic prism. One of the reasons why I find fault with a lot of economists is because at the beginning of of so many of their theorems it's in an efficient market comma you tell me you find me an efficient market there are no efficient markets so what we have to do is recognize that in a world of inefficient markets we tilt the incentives increasingly toward high risk early stage entrepreneurship in this in these fields
1: Uh, A question that came in is, do you have concerns about how Democrats are being increasingly painted as anti-capitalist to your comment about, you know, being red-blooded capitalists, like they're being increasingly tagged as not such?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, it's, it's funny. So there's a, I live in a certain reality. You know, I live in a, in the, the reality of the coastal one elite, uh, the coastal elite, the 1%. But then when I go back and visit my parents in West Virginia, Um, You know, you might see these folks who you you would say, oh, my goodness, they would benefit from greater redistribution of the resources. You know, Um, that's not the way that they think. That's not that. America is, I believe, hardwired to be capitalist. The very act of coming to the United States, unless you're Native American or unless you were brought over here on a slave ship, was an act of entrepreneurship. Go west, young man. Nothing could be more entrepreneurial. And you can go to when I go home to West Virginia and I talk to folks there, what they don't want is equality. They want more opportunity. Um, And so, yeah, whenever we when when Democrats are framed as the anti-capitalist or uh, pro-socialist pro-socialist party, it, it kills them. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the Biden-Trump the Biden, uh, election was not supposed to be as close as it was. You know, all of the polling had it much further apart than it was. And if you looked at what were those things, you know, if you go dig into the polling and say, what was it that happened in those last few weeks, in that last month, that threw the election in a direction that was very different than what we thought it was going to be? A lot of it comes down to two issues. One was this concept of defunding the police, which is very popular in a very, very small number of communities, but very unpopular in a far larger number of communities. And then sort of tagging the Democratic Party as socialist. Um, That really resonated with voters across most of America's 50 50 states. Um, And I think it's one thing that it's important for us to remember in our coastal enclaves that 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 most of America does not agree with either a defunding the police or b anything that smacks of socialism and any th- political framing rooted in either of those two things is 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 kryptonite for voters. I mean, it just they they will run They will run away from you.
1: Um, another question that we got is. Do you think the pandemic has changed people's perception about government deficit spending and modern monetary theory?
0: I do. I, the, and this is this it's interesting watching the the bloodletting the taking place right now between economists in this world. I think that, uh, you know, the initial response to the pandemic, which was, you know, we're going to think in a very short term fashion. We are going to we are going to push levels of spending well past boundaries that we thought um, that existed previously. And we're going to do so. Remember, the the initial investments came from the Trump administration. It's going to come with bipartisan support. It, we we It widened the Overton circle. I mean, it changed people's ideas of what is possible. And I do think that monetary theory more broadly is going to be contested now. And it's interesting to me to see now – the pushback from a lot of traditional and neoclassical economists is going to be, see, now what you're going to get is inflation. Um, I, I hate to say this, but I, I hear Larry Summers, it sounds like he's almost rooting for inflation at this point as a way of validating um, the sort of neo, the, the dominantly neoliberal approach to, um, to monetary policy that's predominated since the late 1980s. And time will tell, Um, you know, will we get increased inflation? Absolutely. But the question is how much and for how long? And are the negative effects of that greater than the positive effects of more access to capital? Um, The the one thing I do write a, a little bit about in the raging 2020s is that the United States did take a different approach to this than the Europeans, which I think is instructive. So from a monetary theory standpoint, from a monetary practice standpoint in the United States, what we did is we we really focused on making sure there was solvency uh, in our markets, making sure that no big companies went under. Whereas in Europe, they really focused more on small and medium-sized businesses and on the individual. And, and we're beginning to see, interestingly, the different effects of that, um, where Europe really said, you know what? big businesses have access to global capital markets if they can't access them and they need to access our capital it's going to come at a substantial price like for example the german government taking 25 percent ownership of lufthansa in exchange for its its capital but what we're going to focus on is small and medium-sized businesses in the united states we really focused on uh we really focused on um on big businesses as, appo- as opposed to small and medium-sized businesses, and we'll see what the effects of that are over the longer term. It's almost like we didn't really learn from 2008. No. And we kind of saw this with the,
1: the, these questions, and, and we haven't done the appropriate lesson. And And this maybe gets to one of the questions. I thought this was really a great question here, is given our lousy civics education and defense of minority rule by reps, representatives of a solid 38% of the USA. What do you think the cultural bridging activities like mandatory, uh, what do you think of
0: bridging activities like mandatory national service? Mm. So look, there are lots of different ideas and all of them, you know, we can argue which are good ideas and which are bad ideas, but ultimately I think what is going to, what, what is going to bridge us is, People in Baltimore, where I live now, West Baltimore, finding common cause with people in West Virginia, people in San Francisco, finding common cause uh, with people from Iowa um, around a shared around shared economic interests. I think that ultimately will drive political changes. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of the changes that we want to make politically to make to frankly, reorient our electoral system, require a bit of a Rube Goldberg device. Um, you know, if, if you want to change the Constitution, if you, want to, if you want to change the manner in which the United States is governed structurally and legally, you're talking about a decades-long process that I think won't be successful unless people in Iowa find common cause with people in San Francisco. And right now, those communities are oriented, even though they oftentimes would benefit from the same policies, because of a series of cultural, frankly, cultural divisions. They're, they are torn apart from each other. And so, look, there are, there are, there are, lots, of, there are lots of great political ideas, but until you, can, until you can build the cultural bridge, you're not going to achieve the needed consensus. Alec,
1: are you an optimist or a pessimist for the next, you know, the the, the rest of this decade?
0: I'm an optimist. Or is it just going to be all rage? No, 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 is, is no, no, like... no, 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 I, no. Look, I wrote this book. Look, this book, despite its title, is in reality an expression of optimism, in part because I think only optimists change the world. Only optimists change the world. Only optimists change the world. And I believe, you know, if I think back to the words of, the artist Pablo Picasso, who said that every act of creation begins with an act of destruction. And we oftentimes are at our very best, coming out of the most difficult circumstances. So the New Deal, which in many respects was a rewriting of our social contract, the New Deal came out of the economic collapse that took place in 1929. But but this can go in one of two directions. So 1929, economic collapse across the West. The United States embraces the New Deal of Roosevelt. But what did the Germans do? They tilted toward Nazism. People forget Adolf Hitler was democratically elected. What did the Italians do? Fascism. Mussolini, democratically elected. So I'm optimistic, but I also believe that whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek, Uh, ultimately does come down to a series of choices. And the United States uh, could go in either direction. But ultimately, I'm an optimist, but we can't take it for granted.
1: If you think about the people who are going to be those that are our next leaders, what's the thing that they need to get into their heads and their actions or we can help instill into them? that helps them get ready to lead us forward into the the next decade?
0: You know, a lot of what I'm, when I think about a lot of our young leaders, and frankly, DJ, also leaders of our generation, I still think of us as young, but you know, it's not, it's not, we're young, but it's our second radio. I think what's holding us back a lot is fear. And I think that what we need to consistently instruct people to do is to make mistakes of commission rather than omission. Uh, We need a little bit, we need more contrarian thinking. We need more audacity. And a lot of what we've seen, if we're being honest in recent years, is anybody who's an outlier, anybody who does not follow the gospel of her or his party, whether it's Democratic or Republican, is sort of Kicked out, like you've seen all of the moderate Republicans retire. You've seen all the de- the the moderate Democrats retire. You've seen all of the. Let's not even talk about moderates. Let's talk about people who think a little bit differently. That diversity, that new, that way of seeing problems and solutions differently, estranges you from your politicians and your political parties. And we need to we need to change that. And so what I and ultimately. These herds aren't leading us where we want to go and so what I will say is to the next generation of people who are who are entering politics or who are going into government or who are starting nonprofit organizations is don't be afraid uh, to cut, cut across the grain don't be, don't be rooted in fear of being cast out because ultimately it's those people who do break through, who will, who will save us. I do believe.
1: Maybe just to, to, um, as our, our last point, and this kind of summarizes a number of the questions that are still in here is, and I would encourage all of you to, to, to tweet at Alec, uh, at your questions also, cause he's, he's incredibly responsive is, uh, you know, given that how much anger we have with the wage gap, the polarization, these types of things, how do we, how do we reach across not just the aisle but you know here in san francisco i reach out to someone in the midwest how does how do we, how do we develop empathy so that we can address things like wage gap without anger while reframing or thinking what's the next version or iteration of the unions with and all the other social constructs that are required as well
0: yeah i think it starts from remembering that we were all born with one mouth and Two ears. and sometimes we get that ratio reversed, and so the if I'm being honest, this is something I have to work on you know when I go again I'll bring West Virginia back in when I go home to West Virginia I can get my blood up pretty pretty fast you know if I'm sitting at the bar you know with somebody and I've got a beer or two in my belly and somebody's talking about Barack Obama um, you know I, what I want to do is debate them and explain to him why, hey, you know, these folks who you don't like very much are ad- are actually governing so much more in your self-interest than those people who you profess to support. But ultimately, my debating them is only going to make them dig into their position more. And ultimately, what's going to build the bridge is listening attentively and honestly asking more questions, like getting them to open up their minds a little bit, not because they've gotten a lesson from Professor Ross, because but because they're asking questions a little differently, or they know new questions to ask. So this is this is something I've learned the hard way. I've you know look, I, I, I get into some squabbles when I go home to West Virginia. I'm just kind of like you dumbass. You think you got a tax break from Donald Trump? He didn't get a tax break. I got a tax break. I, you know, are you and I didn't need one? Are you out of your mind? Like that doesn't work. But just. In what ultimately works, I find, is something almost more Socratic, you know, something that just is something more Socratic and where you do a lot less talking and a lot more listening.
1: It's the one I, I find myself writing on napkins if I'm going into a meeting or, or something is curiosity over judgment. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, because I, I find it myself, I can get myself worked up rather than uh, asking the questions. So I, I think that's fantastic advice. Well, we we reached the end of our time. We could go on forever on this topic because there's so much more. We didn't even begin to touch on the whole sections in, in Alec's book on taxes or how to think about the international developing world and, and so many other areas. Uh, uh, Alec, I just want to thank you for joining us today. and Congratulations on your book, The Raging 2020s. Uh, companies, countries, people and the fight for our future is really a, a critical topic. For those that are interested, please go to our Commonwealth website and you can also purchase a book there. Uh, and I'd like to thank all of you that joined in, asked questions, participated. Thank you for joining us live. For those that are watching us later, thank you for tuning in and finding us. And hopefully you got a lot of value of it. Consider joining us at Commonwealth Club. It's a great place. and There's so much more. And if you want to watch more or support us, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm DJ Patil. Thank you. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and please look out for each other. And maybe let's just all practice what Alec talked about. Let's try to listen about each other's stories and engage more carefully with each other as we learn each other's stories across the country and the world. Thanks, Alec. Thank you.